Hey, you. Yeah, you. If you or someone you know is struggling with anything mentioned on today's program, please, 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 please email me at authentic1 at gmail.com. That's A-U-T-H-E-N-I-C-K, the number one, at gmail.com. I am available 24-7, 365 to help in any way that I can. I have resources, I have open ears, an open heart, and tons of hope. I've been freely given all these things and would love to give them to you. Be good to yourselves and each other. Follow me on Twitter using the handle at Authentic and my dog Marla on Instagram at djmarla.jean. Before we get started today, I would like to tell you that suicide is mentioned multiple times in this episode. If you or someone you know is going to be triggered by that, or you're struggling with suicidal ideation, or you have a plan to commit suicide, please reach out, speak with a counselor today at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Their number is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Alcoholics Anonymous, or AA, will also be mentioned multiple times during this episode. The expressed views and opinions by the interviewee do not reflect AA as a whole. Please enjoy! I, I can't get these memories out of my mind And some kind of madness has started to is Nicholas Thomas Fitzsimmons Vandenhabel, but most people just call me Nick. And this is my show, Authentic. Get it? Instead of authentic, it's authentic. I put Nick in the place of tick. Okay, that might go over somebody's head. Anyway, with me as always is my dog, Marla. Marla! Come here, baby. Say hello to all of our listeners. Yay! I'm not a crap. I'm not a crap. Okay. <laughs> That's enough, Marlo. Why don't you go back to watching The Departed? Anyway, here on Authentic, where we get authentic, we talk about all things recovery. What do I mean by that, all things recovery? Well, what I mean by that is if you are still living and breathing on this earth, you, yes, you are in recovery from something. As for myself, I am in recovery from alcoholism. I I'm an alcoholic. I'm also a drug addict. I'm a compulsive gambler. I have an eating disorder. I have bipolar disorder. Really? <laughs> the list could go on and on and on and on and on. Luckily for you, the show is not about me. It is about two people. First is my guest, Tim. Second is the one person whose life Tim is most certainly going to save here tonight. We are here to let you know that you are not alone. We are here to smash stigma and we are here to provide solutions we've made it 
We've made it to part three of the Tim G Saga. The segment you are about to hear is my favorite segment of the show. It is H-O-P-E. Hope. Welcome back to Authentic. Hi, Tim. Hi. Hi, Tim. How are you? I'm feeling pressured now. Oh man, this has been this has been quite the journey we've been on. I hope one person gets some benefit out of this. You nailed it. We're in our last trimester. We're in our last trimester. Can you feel it? I can. Can you and, feel the baby kick? And let me say this is one of the things that I always whenever somebody says, "Hey, I got 30 days, I got 3 days, I got 10 years, I got 50 years, whatever," I always stop and say, "You know what we got to do now? Get one more day." And that's what it really comes down to. For me, what I say is grateful to be here, grateful to be sober, and thank you all for helping me stay yeah. that way for the first 20 hours and 11 minutes of today. Yeah. Hey, it's only three hours and 49 minutes left, and then I get to start all over again. Yeah, and especially when somebody, like, especially if somebody comes back from, from uh, using again and says, hey, I blah, 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 and I'm back. I always go up and say, you know, congratulations and thanks for reminding me why I need to keep coming. Truth. I want to take a magical trip back to your childhood. Oh, boy. I want to know what you would say to little Timothy, little Timothy that feels alone and scared and confused. In a few sentences, and in your case, a few sentences is about 20 paragraphs. What would you want to say to little Timothy? You're okay. You don't got to be perfect. You're okay the way you are. Your parents seem pretty wacky and unknowable, but hang on. You'll figure it out at some point. You'll understand later, and you don't. it's not about you. What do you want to say to that compassionate priest who is now near death suffering from ALS? Thanks for being supportive of me and reaching out so many times, even though I was an obnoxious brat sometimes to you. That's real saintliness if you ask me that's real love that's love what would you like to say to your mom i love you mom i want you to be happy yep i want you to not have to struggle with all that crazy stuff from the past what do you want to say to your dad tim i love you dad we gotta i wish i would have spent more time trying to hang out with you instead of thinking I was too cool. I know you wanted nothing but the best for me. Thanks. I love you. Tim, you have been, and these are just a few of the ones I've written down, you've been a child support officer, you've been a warehouse worker, a doctor, a lawyer. Well, you weren't a doctor, but you were planning really. on being a doctor. Yeah. Child support officer, warehouse worker, doctor, lawyer, waiter, counselor, paralegal, temp, salesman out of all those what was your favorite ah lordy they all had their moments before i when i worked in the warehouse this was back in the days when they were putting up cubes in offices gazillions and gazillions of cubes and one of the high points of i mean there were great moments in all of those types of work but one of the great moments there was we were in a uh, setup and i was lying on the floor underneath a uh, work surface as we called them in a cube and i was bolting the keyboard holder up on the bottom of it. I was lying on my back under this thing 
screwing it in. And these three women were coming back from lunch, and they were walking by, and one of them, as they walked by, said, I want one of those under my desk. And I jumped up to try to see them and bang my head on the thing, and <laughs> they got away. So there was that. And there are great moments in all of it. I had, uh, <laughs> I had a divorce client one time, Mary, and we were mostly through her divorce, and part of the deal was, and she was a great person. She put up with an amazing amount of crap. Her husband was really a jerk. But part of the deal was Mary was going to get the house out of the divorce. And so before it was over, she called me up. She said, hey, I got a buyer for the house. And I said, great. And she said, but if I close before the divorce is final, my ex has to sign off on it, right? And I said, yeah, definitely. And he'll try to screw it up. She goes, yeah, I will. And I said, because he's a jerk. And she goes, yeah. She said, well, can we get it done quick? And I said, well, you know, we can because the one part that's left we can wait for, you know, we can get the, the actual divorce done first and the other the pension stuff or whatever it was we can we can do later. And I said, but if I call the other lawyer, he's going to want to know why we want to do it. She goes, well, what's a good reason? I said, well, the most common one is that you want to get remarried right away. She goes, hell no. <laughs> Unless you're available to him. And I said, well, Mary, there's two problems with that. The first one is, I'm already married. And the second one is, it's illegal for lawyers to have sex with her clients. She said, who said anything about sex? <laughs> so it has it moments from time to time. They were all good. And there were times, you know, great triumphs in all of those and failures and, and, and struggles in all of them. I'm guessing kind of the underlying theme was, you know, just basic self-doubt, not good enough, not smart enough, not fast enough kind of thing. And what would you say to a youngster that said those same things you just said? Well, one of the things I got to do, my my older son, who's now 32, when he was in like sixth, seventh grade, got in all kinds of stupid trouble with his buddies, things like riding on the carts in the uh, dining room that they weren't supposed to ride on and stuff like that. So the school said, you got to come and you and his mom and he have to come and meet with the counselor every Friday morning for an hour until we decide he's back in good stead. And I heard about a place called Treehouse Youth Outreach, which I'm sure is still around. And it is a faith-based, Christian-based organization where they have not licensed therapists, but people who are kind of lay practitioners who support teenagers and their families and their parents, which probably is a big need for all that. I got involved with a uh, parent support group there and so with a bunch of other parents, and we met every week and talked about stuff with our kids and how things were going on. And one of the guys who led that group, somebody was talking about the kid gets good grades and say, you know, congratulations. And he said, here's here's what I think makes the most sense. And this is what I try to think about, whether it's with clients in the treatment center or my kids or anybody else, is doing encouragement rather than praise. So instead of you got an A on your test wow, congratulations, good for you, you're so goddamn smart, blah, blah, blah. Instead of doing that, saying, you must have worked your ass off to get that, being encouraging and supporting that. And if they go, I got a C on my test, and I go, I know you wanted to do better, but I know you did your best. I know you tried hard, you worked hard, and that's what matters to me. That's what I care about. When I went to law school, I'd never gotten anything lower than a B in my life. In my first semester, I got a practice test. And I went in and he gave me a C. You know, we got through the whole thing. And, and I said, well, geez. And he goes, well, let me guess what grade I gave you. I, got, I bet I gave you a B. I said, you gave me a C. And he goes, eh, big deal. And I was like, oh, my God. That's, oh, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. That, I think, is a huge one. So that's what I would want to do with anybody I'm working with is be encouraging. I think that's what we all need all the time. <laughs> Tim, you got kids. How many kids do you have? Two, two sons that are 32 and 29. 32 and 29. 
Are either of them addicts or alcoholics? Not that I know of, and I, I really don't think so. Why do you think that is? You came oh, from Lordy. a household with an alcoholic mother and an alcoholic father, and you're an alcoholic. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I Boy, you know, I, I, it, lucky, and I, I'm, I'm sure they're aware and they think about it. My older son got caught with a bottle, and one of his buddies, his mom called me one night and said, uh, the cops got him, and if you want to go pick him up right there right now, you can, or are they going to take him downtown? And so I saw I go pick him up. So I went and picked him up. As I was driving there, I was like, well, what am I going to say to him? What do I say? The thing I came up with is, at this point in your life and from now on, whenever you're with your friends, somebody's going to have weed, somebody's going to have alcohol, somebody's going to have some other drugs. Easy for me to say, don't ever do any of them. You're probably going to try them out, you know, which I think is normal. But the things I would say is, you need to take, make a decision. First of all, are you in or are you out? Make it a clear decision. And, I, and then I said, when they were getting to the age where, you know, they were going to be drinking... And I would just say, look, here's the deal. If you drink, that's fine. But do not get in a car as a driver or a passenger after you've been drinking. You know, call me anytime, day or night. I will come and give you a ride. I don't know if that ever happened. But that was, you know, be realistic about it. You're going to try it for Pete's sake. Let's bring it out in the open and see what you think and you know, like that. And I don't, you know, I'd like to think that helped, but I have no idea. Yeah, but they're really cool guys. I am truly blessed. Tim, what is hope. Well, I think believing that things can be better or at least that they can and they can continue being good if they're already good. You know, that forces beyond our control as whether the as well as the the things we can do to arrange events and how things happen. Kind of believing that between the the work I can do and the reality of the universe I live in, things are going to be okay and I can have a life that I like. That's I guess that's what it comes down to. What do you want your legacy as a human being to be, Tim? <laughs> um, Take your time. I, I suppose that, that I was loving to people. People like being around me. People feel like they benefited from knowing me. Would you say that you are addicted or were addicted to your hypomania? I, interesting question. Do you miss it? No, because never, it never ends up fun. One of the things that really helped me the most with that, I believe, is I was involved in a, a support group for people with bipolar disorder. And it was under an organization, and I think it's got a new name now, but it was the Minnesota Depressive and Manic Depressive Association. And it was really valuable because I got to be in a room with people who were struggling with depression and mania and a lot of things that went on. We talked about meds and we talked about all kinds of stuff like that. One of the most helpful things, again, for me, that helped inform my thinking about how to deal with mental health as well as drugs and alcohol and other kinds of behaviors is the idea of catching my behavior. So one of the guys talked about, he said, you know, my family's from rural Minnesota. I talk about bipolar disorder and their eyes glaze over. And so he said, what I, what I, the way I explain it is we're all going along, like here's dead normal. We all have ups and downs to some extent. Some days you're perkier than other days. Some days you didn't get a good night's sleep. You're a little slower, a little grumpier, whatever, but we all have normal ups and downs. And so what, what happens for me is I get going way up too high sometimes. What I need to to do is be able to pay attention to if I'm going, you know, 50 is, is the middle and I'm going 40, but you know, that's okay. If I'm going, if I'm crashing down into 10, I got to do something. I got to call somebody, call my doctor, do something. If I'm getting myself up to 70, 80, I got to do something. I need to eat something. I need to sleep more. I need to take a break. I need to intervene in that process of getting into mania or getting into depression before 
it gets out of control. I remember there was a woman in the group one time who had been gone for a while, and she came back, and she said, I just got out of the psych ward again. It really sucked, but I've made progress in that. I caught myself and got to my doctor before it got to the point where I was going to have to move to a different city and start another career, which she'd done more than once. I mean, somebody else said, I just started this new job two months ago. I'm the number one salesperson, kicking ass. They love me. How do I tell them I'm going to crash in April like I always do and not show up for a month? But again, those are things that can be managed. Do you do you cure your addiction? I don't think so. Do you cure your mental illness? I don't think so. You learn how to manage it. And to manage my addiction, I need to not drink alcohol, but I also need to have a life being involved with people who support, I guess, the values I want to live by of being honest and reliable and helpful and supportive. And I need to get enough of that good stuff coming to me so that I can feel good about, enough about myself, you know, so I can be aware enough to catch myself before I start getting into the depressive stuff, before I start launching into the hypomania stuff. You mentioned earlier that you had been taking antidepressants. Have you been taking other mood-stabilizing medications, or is it just antidepressants for you? I was first diagnosed with depression in, like, 1990. And I think within a few years after that, it evolved into bipolar. And I worked with various psychiatrists over time. I think I started out with other mood stabilizers besides, I think, you know, I remember trying lithium and had bad side effects. I was like shaky and stuff. Didn't take that. And so for the last probably 20 years, I've just taken um, antidepressants. And again, I think learning what I learned in the bipolar support group is what really helped me manage the mania. One of the things, the clues, you know, um, hypersexuality is a big common symptom of hypomania. When I'm thinking about asking the 16-year-old cashier at Target on a date, that's a clue. You know, I need to chill. <laughs> that's extreme, let's say. But, but you know, that's that's where my brain goes when I start getting, when I start getting wound up, when I start thinking, you know, crazy, exciting stuff like that. Well, and that's the wild thing about being sober and dealing with addiction and dealing with mental health, there isn't a panacea. No, you got to, you know, keep on rolling, rolling and rolling and rolling with it, staying in touch with people who I get, you know, tacit or spoken out loud feedback from about my behavior, which I don't like hearing if it's not exactly the way I think it is. I need that. I need... And maybe a sense of accountability. Yeah, a sense of accountability, definitely. One of the common things in, in treatment would be running into people who say, I don't trust my own judgment. I feel like I've made so many stupid decisions. I don't trust myself. And I goes, I would say the solution for that, who do you trust? Who do you think is trustworthy? Who can you count on to support you? Check your ideas out with them. Find somebody whose judgment you trust. Check your ideas out with them before you act on them. Get some, you know, get some input. Or people would say, I don't trust anybody. And I go, well, first of all, who have you been hanging out with? been hanging out with drug addicts and criminals, probably not been acting very trustworthy. Chances are you haven't been acting very trustworthy. How would you know how to do that? And so for trust, my story was, if you walk into a car dealership and wander around for a little while, somebody will come up and say, hey, Nick, I bet you'd look really good in that new truck. And they will talk to you about it. You might stay 10 minutes. You might stay two hours. You might buy a truck. But what's going to make that happen is, how does that trust develop? It has to happen through a series of interactions. Who's somebody you trust that's not a family member? How long did it take from the time you first met them until you got to the point where you trust them to the extent you trust them now? We trust people to, to various degrees. There's people who, they, if they said, hey, can you lend me 20 bucks till payday, it'd be no problem. There's other people who are like, no, I don't think so. But it's an ongoing process of, again, looking at do their actions match their words. That's really what it's about. You've 
kind of touched on it a little bit a few times, or at least from my perspective, you have. Do you view alcoholism and drug addiction and compulsive gambling and eating? Do, do you view those as a disease? I remember there, I had a guy in treatment one time and we we're going on and we go, I, I don't think it's a disease. And I said, that's fine. Just don't drink. You just can't drink. Okay? That's exactly what my sponsor said. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you fucking think. That's right. It could be a disease. It could not be disease. That's not the fucking point. The fucking point is that you don't pick up and you don't kill yourself. There you go. Because and, yeah. if you think you want to kill yourself, think twice because you have no idea who the fuck you are killing. One of the best things I learned about that was two things. One, I went to a talk on suicide years ago. The woman said, you know, whenever anybody attempts or completes suicide, everybody who knows them says, oh my God, what happened? His girlfriend dumped him, his car broke down, he lost his job. You know, but she said, those kinds of things happen to thousands of people every day. Very few of them think about suicide. People who think about suicide and act on it have other mental health problems going on that haven't been addressed. So there's that. Another one was, I heard a thing on the radio about uh, people in San Francisco banding together to try to get people to not jump off Golden Gate Bridge. Among those were, they had interviewed two people who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and survived. And the Coast Guard guy who patrolled under the bridge and pulled a lot of bodies out. And he said most of the people who, the bodies he pulled out, it was clear they hadn't died on impact. They'd flopped around, been busted up and flopped around and drowned. And the two guys who survived were busted up badly. Both of them said the second they let go of the railing, they went, what the hell am I doing? My problems aren't that bad. And again, it's that thing where it's not a rational decision about, hey, I'm having a bad day. I think I'll kill myself. It's a twisted state of mind where you can't make a good decision for yourself. You know, and again, in my mind, it's typically about depression, obviously other mental health things that are often tied in with depression. But it's the kind of thing where if you have a chance to recognize it before you act on it, that's where you got to put in those safeguards and catch yourself as soon as you start going down that road. One of the clues for me about depression is if I miss my antidepressants for a few days, first I just get this vague sense of impending doom. And then after a little while after that, then the negative self-talk starts coming in. That's where I go with the, you know, the thing about suicide. And I totally forgot what, what got us going on that. We're talking about track. whether or not it's a disease. Okay. Well, here, here you go. So the scientific version, here I am on my whiteboard, biopsychosocial disorder. And it's not even called chemical dependency anymore. It's substance use disorders. So there. So, uh, so sad. I know. Biopsychosocial. No, so, substance use <laughs> disorders. Yeah. So the bio <laughs> part is genetics. Okay. Now, I haven't heard that anybody's found the addict gene or the alcoholic gene. At the same time, it's obvious that it runs in families. So there's clearly a genetic component. There's nothing you can do about that. Psychological, I've heard that described as sort of temperament. And so I heard somebody describe that as if you go into the hospital where they have all the babies in the, in the maternity ward in the little baskets, and there's 10 of them, six or seven of them are going to be sleeping or cooing or playing with their toes, and two or three of them are going to be freaking out, screaming and going nuts. And that's temperament. Some people are more mellow. Some people are more high strung. That's, that's certainly part of it. Again, for better or worse, who knows? And then social. If you grew up in Saudi Arabia, even though you had all of the genetic predisposition toward alcoholism, you probably wouldn't get in trouble with alcohol because it's illegal and it's not part of the culture and it's not okay, probably not available for the most part. That's it. Are you around people who drink? I'm, shortly before I left my job at the treatment center, I worked with a kid who was probably 19, and I'm guessing he had you know, fetal alcohol effects, if not fetal alcohol syndrome. He didn't know anybody and had never known anybody who wasn't an active user, if not an addict. 
His his mom was a big meth addict, and I talked to her several times, and she was you know wanted to help him, but and she still drinks, thinks under control. The people he worked with wanted him back at his job, but they all smoke weed and drink regularly. The people that referred him to our treatment center had uh, put him in outpatient and put him in a sober house, and he had his friends come over and bring him booze and drugs like the first day. And it just struck. And I suggested, how about going to this halfway house or something? And he was like, I think it was incomprehensible for him to consider being in a world where everybody didn't use. That was as far as he could imagine. So, you know, that's that's the social part. If it's normal, you know, what's what's normal in your world? You know, that's obviously a big part of it. Those are the those are the factors that are involved. You can't say that any combination of them is going to make somebody an addict. You know, or look at any family. One or two may be addicts and the others might not be at all. Who knows? I'm the lucky one. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Tim, when I was, oh, geez, I don't recall how long I'd been clean and sober. Let's just say I'd been clean and sober nine months. Okay. And I had a breakdown in my vehicle. Um, my vehicle didn't break down. I broke down. <laughs> okay. I was going to ask. And I was I was on the phone with my mother. The topic of going to see a psychiatrist, going to get some help, getting on some meds yeah. is a possibility for me. Sure. And, you know, she kind of knew it. She's like, get on some fucking meds already. Like, they're going to help you. I was so reluctant. Sure. I was, I think I was scared, embarrassed, blah, blah, blah. Are I don't want to be one of those are, people. Are they even going to work? Am I going to yeah. be groggy and ugh. What would you say to someone like me that is reluctant to start or try taking mental health medication? Well, here's a thought. If there's somebody who's in recovery, maybe bring up at a meeting and say, here's something I'm struggling with as part of my recovery. Feel like I've got some mental health symptoms. In fact, I'm pretty sure I do. At the same time, I'm really reluctant to use psychiatric meds and I don't need anybody to say anything right now. But if there's anybody here who has the experience with that and could share that with me and give me their thoughts on how and why they got into it and if it's been helpful and so on, I'd appreciate hearing from them. Something like that, you know, how do you, where do you, where do you get that? And again, you know, when I look back, you know, as I went through various things, especially failures and, you know, quitting practicing law, you know, it's like, what the hell? What a loser am I? And, you know, on the one hand, like, well, I had bipolar disorder. I couldn't help it. And I go, well, duh. The thing, you know, looking back, I could, there were things I could have done. I could have asked for help. I, I'd been in therapy. I could have called the, you know, when I finally did call the therapy, because why didn't you call me two years ago? You know, and I could have, and I didn't. And that's something I would hope that I think would be really valuable to anybody who's trying to move forward in recovery, because there's always going to be the next thing that's going to be hard to overcome. Having the willingness to ask for help is huge. <laughs> it's, I mean, that's how it, that's how it has to start. That's how it has to start. I'd like to think it doesn't have to, you know, again, like the whole hitting bottom thing. It doesn't come because you got enough pain. It came because you had enough insight to say, I'm sick of this. I'm going to do something different. I would hope there would, there would be some way for for people to get that. Who do you know? These people are out there. And you know, and how many times when you, things are really fucked up and people go, oh, geez, why didn't you tell me? I could have helped you. And we've all done it. That's probably the biggest barrier to all those kinds of recovery. I don't remember. Well, then how would, how would you approach or teach or inform kids or adults how to reach out and how to be aware of these things. Do you um, think that there should be something in place like a, I don't know, like a fucking training for kids that are in middle school? These are the signs and symptoms. Reach out to your friends. Reach out. What do you think would fucking work? Maybe it would be part of, I don't know what they call a classes, but things about people, 
different kinds of people and people with different kinds of issues and different kinds of problems. And it might be people in another country who are dealing with, they still have polio there. Uh, it might be somebody who's struggling with, um, you know, the caste system in India and talking about different people have different kinds of experiences and different kinds of problems. It's not all about you got to do this and you got to do that. Different people have different kinds of problems and they can deal with them and they do deal with them. And these are and resources. Let's, and let's see how let's see how they do that. And not that you need to know this because you're going to have to deal with this. Plant the idea that there's a way of dealing with this stuff. And that's how I got sober. There was a seed plant. There was a seed planted when I was, oh God, probably 19. My dad was dropping me off at one of the many houses that I lived in, in Milwaukee, and he gave me the 20 question test. (laughs) My my, my dad's also a a psychologist, counselor, therapist. He's a drug and alcohol guy. Wow. Not an alcoholic. um, Wow. But yeah, he's a drug and alcohol guy. You know, go figure. You know, that's another reason why I'm still alive is because that seed was planted when I was 19 years old. Sure. I just broke down and started sobbing because I answered yes to all. Do you drink? Do you think about drinking in the morning? There's these 20 questions that if you answer yes to, I don't know, seven or more of these questions, you might have a problem with alcohol or drugs, you know, something to, to that effect. And I answered yes to all of them. And then that seed was planted. My dad handed me a when and where. Wow. The the hard copy little paper pocket when and where. And a when and where, for those of you that don't know what it is, it is a when, the time, and the where, a place where you can go to get help. You can go to get help for AA meetings, NA meetings, any sort of 12-step meeting you can find in this when and where. And also I would like to express that there are websites up the ass for support. And we live in an age where you can literally Google how do I get help for and you you can find it. I think that's a fascinating thing about the internet in general is on the one hand, and there's a a movie called... uh, Social Network? Well, there's a social network, but this one is The Social Dilemma or something, and it's about the problems. And they have the guys who invented all this stuff, Google and Facebook and all this stuff, and they're talking about, as we did this, we were thinking, this is a really cool way for people to get together in positive ways and all this stuff, and then it turns into all this horrible stuff. Another story. In any event, you know, with all the options that are out there, Needless to say, you know, like you said, you can Google, you know, anything. I think what happens too often is we're all just stuck in our own little lane looking at the same crap we always looked at, (laughs) you know? And the idea of looking at something new or trying something new that might be helpful is often... uh, It's scary. It's scary. It's uncomfortable. Yeah, it's missed. It's missed. A couple of things I want to talk about. Two, N.A., Started going to NA, a woman friend of mine. And NA is? NA is, Narcotics Anonymous, another 12-step group, kind of pattern on uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. I think it was started in California in the 50s. It's, again, pretty much everywhere and all the time like AA is. And whenever anybody would tell me, oh, you know, I don't like AA or, you know, you know, I don't know if it's really that good or whatever, I would always say, hey, you know what? For whatever it's worth, it's everywhere, it's all the time, and it's free. Likewise with NA. The thing, one of the things I love about NA, I've been to AA meetings in the suburbs where the message was, if you're not middle class white person and if you identify as having a problem with drugs, not even necessarily primarily as opposed to drinking, we really don't want you at this meeting. And, you know, nobody said it exactly like that, but that was the clear implication. I think that's wrong. I think it violates this, the, you know, the only requirement for membership in AA is a desire to stop drinking. If I have a desire to quit shooting heroin or quit uh, gambling my savings away, those are 
other issues. If I want to quit drinking, I get to be an AA. Well, and that's a perfect example of humans being humans. Exactly. 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 And I mean, you know, in the parochial thing, it's like every group of people on the planet are parochial. You know, we do it right and everybody else doesn't do it as good as we do. So there's that. So with NA, the thing I love about NA is in their, you know, preamble or opening statement or whatever they read at the meetings, it says, we do not have a problem with a substance. We have a problem with a disease called addiction. And then they specifically talk about some people see alcohol differently. And I get that. You know, people say, well, why is alcohol illegal? And is legal and pot isn't. I go, because it's a big part of Northern European culture, which is most the dominant culture in the United States. It's always been part of the culture and we've accommodated it. Fascinating stuff. Another one, another thing, a, a resource I've run into, and I mostly know it by the one, this guy named Tommy Rosen, and he's involved in this thing called Recovery 2.0. And I think you pay money and you get to be involved in seminars and stuff like that. But he has tons of free talks on YouTube. Their Recovery 2.0 goes into their anti-yoga and nutrition and lots of other stuff you may or may not be interested in. But he's very well grounded in, in the 12 steps. And I love some of his, he's got one talk in particular I would recommend to anybody who's working on recovery is navigating early recovery and relapse. It's about an hour long. I think it's a wonderful talk. In there, he talks about, you know, we know the primary addictions, alcohol, drugs, money, people, you know, sex and codependence and stuff like that. Tech, uh, money with regard to gambling or debting or overspending. I'm, you know, I forget what the other, oh, food and, you know, whatever the other ones are. And then he said, my definition of addiction is any behavior you keep doing, even though it brings negative consequences into your life. So then he goes, then there are the four aggravators, negative thinking, self-doubt, procrastination, and resentment. And people will say, well, those aren't addictions. And he goes, well, my defi- if my definition is anything you keep doing that brings negative consequences into your life, those things certainly apply. We've all done them. You know, again, it's something to look at. And the same kind of tools that work with addiction to everything else, I think, work with those too. I catch myself getting caught up in that negative thinking or, you know, self-doubt. What good does it do you? But we, for whatever reason, we put a lot of time and energy into putting ourselves down, second-guessing ourselves, talking ourselves out of being who we want to be, and uh, we don't need to. And so, again, that's another tool that I think can be valuable in helping people who are working on recovery to just have a life they like, because that's what it's about. That's exactly what it's about. If you don't like your life... Why why be sober? Yeah, exactly. And you touched on a lot of points that I love to drive home with people that inquire about being sober, being clean or just being in recovery from something because we all go through shit. Yeah. And what I love about what you've said is what I tell other people. I'm an a la carte recovery guy. It's not just AA. It's not just NA. It's not just 12-step programs. Sure. It's, it's, not, it's everything. Yeah. It's all-encompassing, and that's what makes me happy. That's what I feel my life is worth living for. It's doing this podcast. It's, sure. It's, you know, doing nice things for other people, even yeah. though I'm angry. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just little shit like that. Yeah. I, I recently saw a thing on the internet, and it's about how to, how to, how to manage your drinking you don't have to go to those embarrassing meetings and stuff like that. And I remember looking at my first one, I was like, Rawr. and then I went, you know what? If that gets somebody moving in the right direction, I'm all for it. You know, if that gets somebody looking at, you know, like the whole idea about like harm reduction, you know, and on the one hand, it's like, oh my God, you know, that's dangerous. But at the same time, I'll go talk to these, I'll join this outpatient group if they don't, aren't going to tell me I have to stop drinking the first day I get there. And that brings somebody in to start talking better than not. Where it goes from there, who knows? You know, I think all of those things have, have some value. I like to talk to people about their 
what I like to call SPEM Fitness. And SPEM is just an acronym for spiritual, physical, emotional, and mental. What's one thing you've done today to work on your spiritual fitness? One thing. Coming here. What about your physical? Um, let's see. What did I do today to help my physical health? Nothing. Not much. Did you walk up any stairs? Oh, yeah. Today? I walked up some oh, I carried some furniture up and down stairs. There you go. There you There's go. your physical. Yeah. What yeah. about your emotional fitness? What have you done? One thing today. I got to work with some guys who are in recovery today, spend some time with them, talk about how things are going and how they're doing and what's good and what needs work. That's what helps me stay on track for me. And what did you do for your mental health today? One thing that you did for your mental health. I took my medication. I took a nap in the afternoon because so I was feeling really dragging. That helps me feel feel better. Yeah. Tim, thank you. Thank you. This is cool. So much for being on the show. <laughs> You're most welcome. I mean, You're I got be I my can, first three-parter. I could blabber forever, as you can tell. I love talking about this stuff. It helps me. I mean, coming here has helped me. You know, really, you know, it reinforces. When I say this stuff, sometimes I hear it and it helps me remind me while it's, why it's important to pay attention to this and keep doing it. Because I'm prone to chickening out. You know, it's like, I don't want to tell people I have mental illness and I don't want to, you know, be an addict and all that kind of crap. Or, you know, I want to admit that my family wasn't perfect. You know, that's, how can I trash my, um, what are you going, what are you doing going on the podcast and trashing your parents? What the hell? kind of asshole are you? That's not what I did. That what I did was try to tell the truth and point out some of the reality of what they were going through. And like everybody else, they were people that were doing the best they could with what they had. They sure did right by me in so many ways. You know, at the same time, they had some problems. Those affected me too. Tim, you told your story tonight. Yeah. That's what you did. Yeah. You told your story as someone that's still living and breathing. Therefore, you are in recovery. Now comes uh, my second, yeah, my second favorite time in the program Uh where you get to choose, you get to say your own sign-off line. I have this little competition with people because my sign-off line, I think, best in the business. Bar none. You know, we were talking about that black and white thinking. I am at the absolute peak. Cool. I am at the apex. That's that's a wonderful thing for you. I am at the zenith. I'm way up there. I'm really happy for you. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for stroking the old ego. There's a wonderful, what we were talking about, the 20 questions. Have you ever heard of the movie Stuart Saves His Family? No. Who's the guy who was a senator? Al Franken. He made, remember his character on Saturday Night Live was uh, Stuart Smalley. Yes. So it's about Stuart Smalley, and he's saving his family. Long story short, his brother and his dad are out hunting. His dad shoots his brother. His brother goes to get some more beer, and he's coming back through the woods, and dad shoots him. And so he's in the hospital, and he's, he's recovering. And so the uh, alcohol counselor, so Stuart flies into town to rescue the family, and he gets the alcohol counselor in, and the alcohol counselor's talking to mom, who's like Ms. Ms. Uh, codependent. And the alcohol counselor says, you know, does he ever miss work because of drinking? She goes, well, you know, once in a while, maybe, you know. And does he ever drink in the morning? Well, you know, sometimes. <laughs> Stuart pipes in. He goes, has he ever shot a family member while drinking? <laughs> uh, sign off line. Sign off line. Hit me with it. You got to sell me on it, Mr. Salesman, Dr. Lawyer. Wow. If you don't do anything else this week that's good for yourself, listen to this podcast as many times as you can. 
because the wisdom that's stored in here, this is really bullshit. I shouldn't say this is really disrespectful of our listeners. I'm really glad I got and came to talk, and I'm sure I talked way too much. And if anybody got one little piece of help from this and hope and support for their recovery, I'm a happy man. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, as always, be good to yourselves. It's important. As always here on Authentic and Keeping Authentic, we have to pay credit where credit is due. The musical stylings you heard on today's program. To kick us off, you always hear Mad Madness by Muse. And to take us off into the night sky. Tim's tune, Pots on Fio, a.k.a. Filet Gumbo, by Dr. John the Night Tripper, off the Sun, Moon, and Herbs album. And as always, be good to yourselves. It is ever so important. The chicken ain't a fighting rooster, got out one night. That fighting rooster told that chicken, I'm gonna knock your teen out of sight. The chicken told that fighting rooster. Well, that's all right. I'm gonna meet you in the gumbo in tomorrow night. Yeah.